This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Good morning, everybody. Hey, before I begin my sermon, I do want to just say yesterday I participated in the NERF event. Um, And for those who are here, uh, the NERF event is an elaborate interactive live action game and this was my first year and let me tell you it was elaborate and it was interactive and live action and I played a character named (laughs) Colonel Von Waddle who willingly gave his life for the joy of your children yes thank you (laughs) You've ruined my plans. Is that Oscar worthy? Yes. Is that pretty good? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I just want to say it was a great time to connect with the kids. But can we just, I'd love to just thank the volunteers. I know Russ, you know, created software for hydraulics on an airplane. Yes, we made an airplane. Russ, right there. There he is. But, um... Just these engineers who gave up their time. But I know there were like over 100 adults who volunteered. If you volunteered, would you mind standing just so we can say thank you for take, you know, just loving the kids and all that you, yeah. Um, so grateful. Rick stayed up till 3 a.m. last night. And we have such a great children's uh, ministry, youth ministry, and the staff they just love our kids. So thank you, Rick. Thanks for everybody volunteering. So, yeah. 3 a.m. That's incredible. Wow. All right. Change gears. <laughs> Here we go. So we are uh, continuing to follow Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to be looking and studying Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 35. It is one of the most important passages in this gospel. Uh, It contains one of the most important verses because it helps us understand the meaning of the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus, if you think about it, really is one of the most important events in human history, without doubt. The cross that we see here is a symbol of his death. It's one of the most recognized symbols on the planet. Would you agree? Uh, Another symbol is communion. Uh, The symbol of the Lord's death is communion, which we're going to take right after this sermon. When Paul is going to take the the bread and the wine, and he says, when we eat the bread and wine, we are proclaiming what? His death. We're proclaiming. There's something about the communion itself that points us to the meaning of Jesus' death. But if his death is so important, if this symbol of his death is so widely recognized, if communion is a symbolic meal that proclaims his death, then it's important to ask, what does his death mean? Why is it so important? What does his death mean? That's what we're going to explore today. And when we begin to grasp, to just begin to grasp the meaning behind his death, It can transform our lives, and it has, and it can change the world. So why don't we 
do what we just sang about. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to teach us and to change us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence and we affirm what we sang. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us and teach us and change us. Help us through your Spirit just even catch a little glimpse of the meaning of the death of Jesus so that, we, so that his life-giving love can transform us, can change us, change our homes, our relationships, our church, our community, this whole world. So fill us with your spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, all right, before we look at the text, let me just remind us of the context. Jesus foretold of his death three times in the gospel. So uh, before the transfiguration, Jesus was teaching his disciples. He says, I'm going to suffer, die, and rise. And he spoke plainly about it. And so plainly, Peter knew what he was talking about. Maybe it was only Peter who knew what he was talking about. And he says, no way, Jesus. And Jesus, if you remember, rebuked him. Then, uh, then after the transfiguration, when he's walking through Galilee, he once again, a second time, starts talking about his death. He's walking to Jerusalem, talking about his death. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise. And they didn't understand him. And they were afraid to ask him about it. But that was what he was talking about, his death. And then a third time, right before this passage... He once again is talking about his death. He foretells his death a third time. Again, they're walking to Jerusalem. They are, the disciples are amazed at Jesus, and they're afraid, and they're following after him. And he once again, he says to them that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that is to Pilate. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and what? And kill him. They're going to condemn him to death and kill him. And after three days, uh, he will rise. So that's a third time he's talking about his death. So he's teaching them about his death. That is the topic of conversation that is happening as they're walking to Jerusalem. So now let's look at, the, at a conversation between Jesus, James, and John. So you can imagine yourself, you're the other disciples, Okay. So you're just watching. You're the 10 other disciples, and we're going to eavesdrop a little bit and, and listen in on this incredible conversation. You ready? Because it, it helps us understand the meaning of his death. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teach, listen to this, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. I mean, can you imagine what they're asking to be his right hand, his vice president and right in the glory of glories? That's what they're asking. Now, how are you feeling? Ten disciples listening in. You feeling good about that? Like go James and John. Yes, you deserve it. No, you're not, you're not thinking that at all. I wouldn't be thinking that. So Jesus said to them, well, do you know what you're at? You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink what? The cup that I drink. Or to be baptized with what? 
the baptism which I am baptizing. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at the right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard about it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So you, you, you feel a little indignant? You can feel what they're feeling as they're eavesdropping in on this conversation. They're hearing this. And as a result of that interaction, Jesus then begins to teach not just James and John, but all of his disciples about the meaning of his death. And I love this about Jesus. It's not that he taught sermons all the time. He would just use ordinary conversations or what was happening in life and use it as a teaching moment. And that's what happens here. Now look at what he does. He's going to call all of you to him with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, right? We all get that. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among my disciples, among you. But whoever would be great among you, my disciples, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, my disciples, must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, so title he gives to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. What an incredible conversation. Jesus is teaching his disciples about the meaning of his death. And he does it in order to change their lives. He does it in order to inspire them to serve one another, to serve one another, love one another. So this passage is, is all about the death of Jesus. That's the topic, the death. That's what he is talking about. So I want to ask this morning two questions related to that topic. First, what is the meaning of his death? It's all there in what we read, but I want, to, I want us to think it through and study it a little bit. And then the second question that I want to ask is then, what does the meaning of his death mean for us today? Does that sound good? So question one, what is the meaning of his death? The key verse in the gospel of Mark is this, the son of man came, and would you read it with me? To give his life as a ransom for many. The meaning of his death is contained in that one sentence. And I want to look at each of these words and phrases one at a time with you. And we're going to think this through a little bit. I'm going to be asking some questions and thinking it through. And then we're going to get to what it means for us. So first, to give his life. What does that mean? It means he's, what he's saying is he's going to die. Remember, that's the topic. He's been talking about his death. He is going to die. He is going to sacrifice his life. That's what he's doing, willingly giving his life. But why? For what? What for? He says it's as a ransom. His life is as a ransom. So this word ransom means to pay a price or it's a payment given to set someone free. 
So in order to set them free, you have to pay a price. And what's that ransom price? It's not money. It's laying his life down. It's giving his life. That is the price to set someone free. And as a ransom for. This word for is really important. In the Greek, it literally means on behalf of or instead of. It's the word for substitute. In other words, he's going to give his life on behalf of, he's going to sacrifice his life instead of you, on behalf of you. That's what for means. But who is he going to sacrifice for? Many. The many is for you and for me, for all who call upon his name. So Jesus, again, he came to give his life, to die as a sacrifice, as a ransom, to pay a price, to set someone free for, as a substitute, instead of us paying the price. And it's for many to set all of us free. Sound good? But what's he setting us free from? What is it that we're being set free from? It's actually right there in this conversation between James and John. Listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Have you ever thought, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by the cup or the baptism? What does he mean? In the Old Testament, the, the cup is a symbol. It's not referring to any old cup. It's a, the cup is a symbol of God's wrath or God's judgment. And what that means, God's wrath or his judgment, is it means the punishment for sin. So that is what he is setting us free from, the cup. He's going to drink the cup. In other words, when he says, I'm going to drink the cup, he's going to drink the punishment for all people's sin. He's going to take that on himself instead of us. That's what he's doing. And what is the punishment for sin? The punishment in the Old Testament, we're going to learn all about this as we journey together through Scripture. The, the punishment for sin is death. And if we think about it, it's true. Anytime we do something wrong or sin, there's some kind of death that results in it. Could be physical, could be spiritual, emotional, something that will die. And so the punishment, therefore, of sin is death. And when Jesus says, Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What what is he saying? He's going to die on our behalf. Baptism, if you think about it, the waters are a symbol for death. So when when you're immersed in baptism, you're immersed into what? Into death. You're immersed into death. So Jesus is going to be baptized into death because death is the punishment for sin. So Jesus came to die as a substitutionary sacrifice in order to set us free from sin and death. Pretty good news. But why, I keep asking, why does Jesus die as a substitutionary sacrifice? Well, for one, it's to fulfill the Old Testament sacrificial system. He fulfills that with a once and for all sacrifice. That's incredible news. But why does Jesus sacrifice for me and you personally? Why does he do this? 
Why? Yes! Thank you! Oh, he loves us. Romans 5 says this, God shows his what? His love. He shows his love for who? You, for you and for me personally, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. There's that theme of his death again. That's what he's doing. He is loving us. Now, some people just don't like the idea of substitutionary and sacrificing. Some people understandably think, well, if God is so loving, why all this need for a sacrifice? And why not just forgive? And the answer is it's, because, it's precisely because of his love. It's precisely because he loves us that he's willing to sacrifice for us. That's why we, we need a sacrifice because of love. You know, one of my former pastors said this. He says, all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Do you believe that? All love that changes us and transforms us is fundamentally substitutionary sacrifice. Let me try to illustrate this. Any parents out there? You want to talk about substitutionary sacrifice? Let's talk about parenting. What is parenting? Because parenting is a great example of sacrifice, of substitutionary sacrifice. What do you do as a parent? You have this precious little baby who needs everything. And you, you willingly sacrifice your time. You change their diapers. You can't go on that wonderful vacation that you love because you've got to pay for their college education. There, uh, how much do we lay down and sacrifice what we want for that child? Why do we do it? We do it because we love them. That's why we do it. We we substitute our will and sacrifice for them. And to the degree we do that, it's to set them free. That's what parenting is. You just love and give and lay your life to set them free. That's substitutionary sacrifice. It's all about love. Another example is forgiveness. Forgiveness is very difficult to do. We need it. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is when one person wrongs or sins against another person. And then that person who did the wrong owes the person who is wrong a debt. So in other words, if someone stole money from somebody, um, they owe them what? Money. So in that case, there, it, it takes two people to reconcile but only one to forgive. Let me try to illustrate this. Two people to reconcile. So say someone wrongs this person, and then they say, I'm so sorry for what I did. I'm going to pay you back double. And then this person says, well, oh, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Appreciate the apology. Um, And thank you. I'll receive that debt, that gift. And so then they come together and they reconcile. That's reconciliation. It It only takes one person to sin against another It always takes two to reconcile together, but it only takes one to forgive. If you think about what forgiveness is, which is the heart of God, it's the heart of the law, heart of Leviticus, heart of the prayer of Jesus. If you think about forgiveness, forgiveness is substitutionary sacrifice. 
Because if you think about it, when someone wrongs you, they wrong you, and you're hurt, you deserve, there's a debt they need to pay, but they won't. They turn away. They won't do it. How does forgiveness happen? The only way that forgiveness happens is if the person who was wronged sacrifices. If they substitute themselves, if they take it on themselves, they don't deserve it, but if they take it on themselves, sacrifice in order to set that person who wronged them free. That's radical love. That's a love that changes the world. It's substitutionary sacrifice. That's why my former pastor says all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. And it's the meaning of the death of Jesus. He came to die as a sacrifice in order to set us free from sin and death fundamentally because he profoundly, wildly loves you. So that's the meaning. Are you with me? Let's go to the second question. So what then does it mean for us? How do we take it from just intellectual head knowledge into our hearts, even just a little bit? You see, the death of Jesus is a life-changing love. It changes our life. And to the degree we understand the meaning of it, we see it in in our life that is changed. Jesus himself talks about love when he says, my commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would what? There he is talking about his death again, that would lay his life down for his friends. In other words, what he's calling all his disciples to is to love one another, not the way you want to be loved, to love one another the way he loved, as he loved. And the example of his love is laying his life down. That's the example. Wow, it would change everything. The death of Jesus is a life-changing love. It changes lives. And I want to give two examples of lives that were changed because of this love. The first is his disciples. If you remember back into this story, after that interaction between James and John, he calls the disciples and he says, but whoever's going to be great among you must be the servant. Whoever's going to be first among you disciples must be the slave of all, the servant of all. And then what Jesus says, and this is this great sentence, this key sentence, he says, for example, I love that word for, for example, even me, Jesus says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And and how do you do that? he He gave it all. He gave his life as a ransom, paid that price for all, for us. And that went from the head to their hearts. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ fundamentally and radically changed the disciples' lives forever. It changed the course of history. That kind of love changes the course of history. If you just pinch yourself for a moment and realize we wouldn't be here together if it weren't for the changed lives of these disciples. Wow. 
I want to give you another example of a life that was transformed by Jesus' life-giving love. And, and it changed the world. His name was Count Nicholas Ludwig van Zinzendorf. If anyone can say that ten times really fast, I'll be very impressed. I challenge anyone, say that ten times really fast. It's really hard. Count Zinzendorf, and if, you've, if you're a lover of church history, you can read about him. This is, he's an amazing man. Listen to this story. So he's the, he was from a noble German family, and he, as a young aristocrat, they would go on what's called the Grand Tour, which is basically they'd visit royal courts throughout Europe, and he went to the Dusseldorf Museum in Germany, and he sees this painting, which you'll see on the screen. It's, it, the title is Ecce Homo, which means Behold the Man. Uh, and this painting depicts the Christ suffering. So he, Jesus, again, he, he, was li- he willingly gave his life. So he's talking about this, his death. He was condemned. He was spit on, beaten, mocked, and whipped, just as he predicted and foretold would happen. And then Jesus was delivered to Pilate to be crucified. And if you remember when he was delivered, he, he was wearing a crown of thorns. And Pilate says, Behold the man! Behold, look, look at him. Pay attention to him. He said it in a crowd like this. And the crowd just chanted back, crucify him. So in this painting, he's depicting that whole scene that leads up to his death. And Jesus is wearing a a crown of thorns. Blood is dripping from the top of his head. And he's leaning against a wooden crossbeam. And if you can see it, I don't know if you can see it, there's a motto written to that crossbeam in in Latin. And this is what it says. It says, "If this I have suffered for you, this I have suffered for you, now what will you do for me? And, And Count Zinzendorf looked at this painting, and he was profoundly changed. He beheld the man. He just stayed with the painting. He meditated on it. He, he had what he called a mystical experience. He was profoundly changed, and he came to an intent. The, the idea of his death shifted from the head to his heart, and he had an intensely personal experience of faith with Jesus Christ. And it changed him forever. It literally, that experience, that personal faith in Christ was what led to a whole revival movement. Um, And so as a result, I mean, can you imagine this? Of him looking at this painting and being changed by the death of Christ it changed him. Let me tell you some things that happened. Zinzendorf opened his, his estate to persecuted Christians, mostly from Moravia. And when you can imagine all these people coming to his estate, when there's a lot of people together, sometimes disagreements happen. I know that that never happens with any of you or us. But there were disagreements that happened. Now, what do you do when you disagree? What did he do after beholding the man? What do you do when you disagree? Well, they're wrong. Well, no. You're wrong. Well, no. You're wrong. Don't you do that too? You put your hands on your hips. That's the movement. Okay. 
What do you do when you be, what do you do out of your own will? You do that. What do you do when you behold the man? What do you do when you behold the man? Well, what he did was he started a prayer meeting. Get this. The prayer meeting was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and, can, and they rotated believers. Guess how many years this prayer meeting went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Go ahead, guess. Five years? No. Seven? No. You were in the first service. <laughs> a hundred years. A hundred years, uninterrupted years. Could you imagine if that happened here, Melinda? Can you imagine if that happened here? That's what he did when he beheld the man in the midst of disagreements. Do you know that more missionaries went out from his estate in 20 years than the previous 200 years in the entire Christian world? Wow. All because he beheld the man. Do you know this? Those missionaries that went out, they're called the Moravian missionaries. They went on a, they sailed to America. And when they were sailing, there was a huge, terrifying storm. And in the midst of this terrifying storm, they thought it was a good idea to trust God. And they were singing praises to God in the midst of a terrifying storm. Meanwhile, there were two hovering, frightened little men named John and Charles Wesley on that ship. And they were so impacted by this personal faith in Jesus, by these missionaries. It changed their lives forever. They went to America just to be a pastor and a secretary, and they came back and led the Methodist revival movement in England. They went on later to inspire George uh, Whitfield, who then started the Great Awakening in America revival by beholding the man. Simply by beholding the man. And when we begin to understand the meaning of his death. His death inspires us to give our lives and just begin to serve others. So I want to conclude this sermon by giving us a few minutes to meditate on this painting and while listening to a hymn called, I Give My Life for Thee. And, and the reason we're going to listen to this hymn is because this hymn that you're about to hear is inspired by that very painting as well. Um, let me, uh, Francis Haver, Havergale wrote another famous hymn called Take My Life and Let It Be. Anyone heard that one? Pretty awesome song. So this is her first hymn. It's called I Gave My Life for Thee. Let me just share a little bit about the writing of this hymn. Because it was inspired by her beholding the man. So she's looking at the same painting, beholding the man, remembering his death and moving into it. And she read the motto, which says, this I have suffered for you. Now, what will you do for me? So she began to contemplate and pay attention and look at Jesus and his death and what it means. And she was inspired by that motto. So she wrote a poem with the title, 
I did this for thee, what hast thou done for me? And she began to etch and kind of ask a question at the end of each of the stanzas. You know, what have you given for me? What have you left? What have you borne? What have you brought for Christ? Like, what have you done? But have you ever written a poem and you didn't like it? So she wrote a poem, this, this poem, and she didn't like it. So she threw it in the fire. But it didn't burn. That's the story. It didn't burn. She pulled it back out and she wrote this poem which inspired this hymn, inspired by this painting, inspired by beholding the man. So before we proclaim the Lord's death by taking communion, I want to invite all of us in these next moments to meditate on this painting while listening to this hymn.
make his face to shine all over you and be gracious to you and smile on you and give you peace. And all God's people said,